welcome to ABA Unfiltered. I'm your host, Tim Crilly, and today we are joined by Dr. Summer Adamy and Amanda Fulbright, who happen to be two of my favorite people at Blue Sprig. And they're here to talk some shop and offer some sage-like advice, so that's the hope here, to any new BCBAs out there as they begin our, their careers in the ABA world. So Amanda, Summer, welcome. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedules to join us and chat a little bit. Thank you so Thanks much. For Thank you for having us. Yes. Amanda, since you're you're new to the show, I will let Summer, who I believe is making her 15th appearance or so on here. So Summer, I, I know we've met you in the past and you've introduced yourself, but for any first time listeners, could you maybe just give us a quick rundown on who you are and, and what you do for Blue Sprig? Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, so my name is Dr. Summer Adamy. I'm currently serving as VP for Clinical Outcomes and Research at Blue Sprig. Thanks for having me. And part of that role, naturally looking specifically at the quality of services that our clients are receiving, as well as hopefully providing supports for our clinicians through research, as well as through mentorship. Great. Thank you. Ms. Fulbright. Hey, guys. I'm Amanda Fulbright, and I am the Vice President of Learning and Development at Blue Sprig. And it's really cool to be on here with Summer because Summer is the reason I uh, decided to come to Blue Sprig officially after chatting with her. Wanted to work with her and here we are. Yeah, I'm really excited to to do this together. We'll talk a lot about um, when you're BCBA looking for jobs. And one of my favorite parts of this job truly is, is creating friendships with Amanda, but also with Tim. I think even for years and years to come, we're we're all going to be good friends. Sure. So guys, two VPs in the organization, but true VPs in life as well. So thank you for being here. What drew you guys to real quick, just the 30,000 foot view, what got you into this industry and what has made you stick it out? Me first. Okay. Mine's kind of a funny story. I was at University of North Texas and I was a psych major as many people are in undergrad. I had a friend who was taking a a course and she was telling me about some of the cool things that she was learning, like, you know, why people, you know, slot machines can be, you know, addicting or gambling can be addicting to people. uh, And this little concept about how you don't answer the phone every time your boyfriend calls, like sometimes you need to let it go to voicemail and and don't call him back. And that, that might make him call back more. And I was like, what's this voodoo? So I was like, what is this? cool magic you're talking about. Like this sounds really neat. And she took the class because it was like in the same building as her class before and the class after. And so it was out of kind of laziness that she took this class. But anywho, I set up a meeting with Dr. Janet Ellis, rest in peace, from the behavior analysis department at UNT and signed up for the class for the next semester, the intro to behavior analysis class as an undergrad. And I think I changed my major within a week of the first class because it just had me hooked. Well, side note real quick, even though I'm living Southern California and a few biscuits older than Amanda. We were both probably at the same events at UNT on multiple occasions because of a, a previous life I had. So we never knew it, but we've known each other a, a long, long time, but only have yeah. recently become friends in the last three years. Yeah. Summer, what about you? What what got you into this crazy business? So mine is a, a little different. I actually had a niece who was born with a severe developmental delays. Uh, she had a trach and she had a G-tube and she had no volitional movement whatsoever. She was, I was 14 years old when she was born. And so um, I had an opportunity to see her work with her therapist really 
often. My sister and her family lived next to us. So um, I really had a chance to go over and watch um, firsthand what therapy looked like with a child with severe disabilities. And she was able to do things that you wouldn't have expected a child that had her challenges to be able to do. So I actually fortunate that I knew really early on that I wanted to work in some capacity with kids that had disabilities. She passed away my senior year of high school, but um, that, that was, we had her for almost four years and she was supposed to be with us for about uh, two weeks, I think was wow. <laughs> was what was predicted. Really, I like I say, I knew really early on that I wanted to work with kids with disabilities. Fast forward a little bit, I was an undergrad at Meredith College, which is a low VOS replication site, and they had an autism lab downstairs and they came into one of my introductory site classes and said, hey, we need folks. It would have been the equivalent of an RBT role, but we need folks to work with these lovely little children down in the autism lab. Anybody that's interested, come on downstairs after class and we're going to have this orientation. And and so that was it. And that was in 90, 90, late 97, 98. Yeah. 22 years later, I'm, I'm still here. And I feel like I can empathize a lot. I think the epitome of perseveration is a PhD in one, what used to be considered <laughs> rare incident <laughs> disability. So that's really all I've done is, um, is work with folks with developmental disabilities and autism, all the way from brand new diagnoses, which I'm here today in a diagnostic center, all the way through um, geriatric population. Well, that's great. Thinking back, part of what we wanted to talk about today is, you know, what sort of advice or, or thoughts do you think folks should be keeping front of mind as they enter into the field? What do you wish you had known back when you were getting your start? What is something that maybe kind of surprised you about how it all works, whether it's from a, a business standpoint, a regulatory standpoint, or just purely from a clinical knowledge base? I think for me, I mean, don't get me started on the business or the regulations or anything, because I knew so little about any of that when I was starting out. But speaking clinically, I wish I could kind of go back and tell my younger self that it's okay and also not realistic to know everything or to be an expert in all things. It's also, you should spend time looking outside of ABA too. Look at other disciplines that are much more established than us. Look outside of our literature, look to see what has been done in the medical field with you know speech or nursing or you know any of those other fields that kind of can be similar to our field at times, psychology. You know, really work to collaborate and to incorporate those those approaches and kind of treat your problems, whether they're a business you know, problem or you're working on a tough case or whatever it is, whatever you're facing, approach it holistically and that you can still incorporate other disciplines and things like that into your interventions and still maintain, you know, a level of scientific control just because you incorporated a practice that's maybe not into the ABA and like you're collaborating with speech and things like that doesn't mean that you lose control of your case. Sure. Um, definitely drop that ego is what I would say mm -hmm. to the younger Amanda. Summer, before you jump in, I I'll wholeheartedly agree on the concept of don't pretend mm -hmm. like you know everything raise your hand. I think that's something that I wish I had known more in not just in this in endeavor, but just in general, when anytime you're starting out in a new career, it's always important to be able to show people that you can ask for help when you know you need it rather than trying to, to fake it. I think a lot of people make that mistake and it can be pretty detrimental. Even if you've got a good idea and you know what you're doing, man, somebody else might have a perspective that you didn't think about. And that's really important, I think, to incorporate different perspectives, different experiences, and 
yeah, so even if you know what you're doing, it doesn't hurt to ask a trusted peer or a mentor what their thoughts are, what their two senses are on something. Yeah. Summer, anything to expand on? Yeah, and I agree with all of those points. I, you know, totally think that we should raise our hands even after you've been in the field for a long time. Raise your hand and raise it often. Even like you say, whenever you are, when you think you have it all buttoned up, still, you know, look for someone else's perspective. I would add to that that I really wish that I had been encouraged earlier on in my career to visit a day habilitation centers, mm. to visit an adult center, That's to a great visit point. Yeah, I really wish I would have. Um, I didn't have that experience until I was probably nine or 10 years into my career to actually work specifically with adults. And I think that, I hope that my clinical skills have sharpened as a result of, of those experiences working with adults that have autism and adults that maybe had never had services or adults that had limited services. It really makes me rethink what are the goals and objectives that are really going to matter long-term? Does it really matter if we're able to point to 50 things in the environment, if we're not able to act with any type of independence whatsoever for what will be the majority phase of our life, which is adulthood. So I, I really wish that early, early on, someone had taken me even during undergrad to see this is what it looks like whenever goals and objectives are not prioritized, whenever we're teaching to a specific assessment tool, whenever we're not working on working towards independence and learning and truly learning in the natural environment. But I would say also to that, uh, my first experience with going into some of the adult centers where these folks had never had access to services, that's what actually energized my interest in advocacy. And I wish that I had had that interest even earlier on. That's a fantastic point. And it kind of segues into something I was thinking about when, you know, thinking about what we were going to talk about. Do you feel like that's a product of the system, the current system for becoming a BA? Do you think that's a failure in the way we train future BCBAs? Or is it something that people should be trying to do on their own? I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you feel like we should revamp the way we do this to expose future clinicians to a wider range of individuals, populations, however you want to look at it. Do you think that's something that that should be looked at or would it not really have the same effect? I think it would absolutely have the same effect. And to be honest, I think the drivers for increased opportunities is directly tied to funding. There is just simply an unparalleled amount of funding that's poured into early intervention, as it should be. Sure. I'm certainly not discounting that. But because there aren't a lot of funding opportunities for the adult population, there aren't naturally going to be a lot of clinical opportunities there either. So I really do have to seek those opportunities out and then go for from there. But because funding is so limited, because there's an assumption that we start to lose our ability to learn as adults. But if you think about it, there's very little opportunity for direct instruction as an adult. Um, we've absolutely seen adults make massive gains just simply from a model very similar to early intervention when they never received that before. But the funding's just simply not there. Most adults are likely part of a Medicaid waiver program, and they may receive 30 hours a year of behavioral mm -hmm. supports. Yeah. And so given that it's not often a competitive job market for behavior analysts to um, work with adults simply because there's, there's going no to be, a, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And, and to add to that, that's, you know, the particular funding sources many times are only mm -hmm. paying for behavior analysts. They're not paying for an RBT. Sure. Um, therefore, there's not a lot of opportunities, many fewer opportunities for you to learn how to work. Sure, the internship, with, uh, the internship sort of process. Yeah. 
Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Alan had many people that wanted to do their experience hours when he was in the adult popula working with the adult population and uh, he, he couldn't do it because they couldn't yeah. they couldn't fund those positions. Mm -hmm. And those individuals missed out on learning to serve a huge population that needs our help. Okay. Real quick, Summer, just for yeah, my mom, for my mom who's, who's <laughs> listening right now, Alan is closely related to Amanda, and he's also a BCBA who really has a passion for adolescent and adult services, who we, we hope to have on here to talk sometime mm -hmm. in the future. So just a little clarity Sorry for, my about mom, that. for my mom, for my mom who's tuned in. Yeah. No, we're, <laughs> Sorry, we're not in the Marriott <laughs> lobby right now in, yeah, uh, yeah, in uh, yeah. Houston, the West Jay, yeah, so sorry. no. I think people will know who Alan is. I think we're covered. We are, we're just fine. We're just fine. <laughs> Summer, you were going to say something, so I apologize. Yeah, it, it just kind of leading into that, I um, fortunately have had an opportunity to teach at several universities as an adjunct professor. And if we do have any professors listening or if we have students listening that um, could potentially pose this as an opportunity, whenever I do teach a class as part of my coursework, I do require the students that I work with to go to a day habilitation center, to go to an adult services wow. center and just go in. And it was really easy at one point in time. Um, that's all we served was adults for another company that I worked with. But now we are serving more and more adults. But um, but I think the services that we offer adults is very different than the services that most adults are receiving. So I would encourage any professors that could be listening or any students that are listening to potentially ask, can my special project be this? Um, because we have lots of students that decided to go into working specifically with adults based on those lab experiences and um, with the requirement being go into the day habilitation centers? Obviously, from the time, certainly, Summer, you became a BCBA, I became a BCBA. I think we got a couple of years on Amanda, but not too many. You know, obviously, there we have seen a lot of changes in mm -hmm. the process, but like everything else, it is still a work in progress. Mm -hmm. If we want to be taken more seriously as a discipline, there probably are some additional things that need to be added into this process mm -hmm. just to make sure we really are producing well-rounded or more well-rounded uh, clinicians mm -hmm. on the other end. So, you know, I don't know if there's anything else you guys would want to expand on your thoughts on the current model of going to school, field work, supervision, if there's anything that you feel that we were lacking or are we there? Are we doing a, a good job on that part of this process? Well, I would probably, the only other thing that I'd add um, would be medical necessity. I don't know that we have curriculum. I actually, I feel like we, I know we don't have curriculum designed around specifically programming to medical necessity. There has been a shift in payment structure from the onset of our careers to now. And I think that a lot of our clinicians are at a disadvantage um, when they go to work for ABA companies and potentially have been trained to program in one particular way, but that's not going to meet medical necessity. And so that would probably be the other piece. Raise your hand and ask, hey, how can I get experience with working with medical, <laughs> medical necessity? Because unless you're going to, you know, a tier one research university and, you know, continuing along that career path, you're likely going to come across funding that requires documentation and programming to medical necessity for the treatment of autism. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts in, in this area, as you guys could probably guess, given uh, my department runs our internship program. But um, oh, my gosh, that was uh, next on my list. Thank you. <laughs> so lots of thoughts. And the first thing I, th I think that that first of all, the BACB has made is definitely going in the right direction. And I and I really applaud what they've done as far as, you know, increasing the number of hours and, and making some stipulations around restricted and unrestricted hours. So for anyone that doesn't 
truly understand what that means. So that kind of like focusing on like you're doing direct RBT work versus you're doing stuff that BCBAs would do. And and so somebody can't finish all their hours, you know, working as an RBT and really great test taker. You know, they study, they, they know the material, they pass the test and then, but they've never been a, you know, done BCBA work in their life. Sure. I think that they're making great, strides. But I would say, you know, this is going to be unpopular, but I think that some of the hours should be done post degree. That way you're not shoving all of your experience hours and your coursework all in a 12 to 18 month period. And that gives you just some breathing room to learn the material and then and then learn to apply it. Or you have to have finished the first two introduction courses before you can start. Something along those lines, I think would be important. And again, that might create an access to care issue, but I think the bigger issue is access to quality care, right? Mm -hmm. Not just access to care. For those of you who didn't listen to the uh, introductory portion of this this podcast, but I I spent a little bit of time on the managed care side of the equation. And I, I think the biggest takeaway I had from my time in that world was really we're all responsible for the consumer protection aspect of this process. So it's up to the health plan to ensure that the right people are doing the right things, but it's also incumbent upon those providers to make sure that it's the highest quality of care. And to your point, Amanda, access to care, wait lists, all these Mm -hmm. things force providers more often than not to throw people in to situations that they're technically credentialed for, or they have the right whatever, but they might not have the skill set or the proper training. So given that idea, do you feel like it is more incumbent upon these ABA providers to be changing that narrative, to be ensuring that they are providing the correct level of mentorship, even if it's for someone that has already jumped through all the hoops, done all the things they need to do? Or is it really up to that individual clinician to be able to say, I need you to give me this? What do you think about that? I think it's both. I think that the individual employee should ideally be self-aware and recognize that they still have things to learn that they might not have received in their education or, or previous employment. But I think that the employers need to recognize that somebody's got to do it. And ultimately, you're the one with the clients and you're the ones with that burden to bear, I guess, you know, you want to make sure that your clients are well taken care of, you then have to assume that role as teacher at that point. And even if, again, they might have a BCBA behind their name, or they might be done with their experience hours, but as a provider, you need to make sure that they're qualified to provide that service. And that oftentimes is more than the items on the task list. There's in our internship program, maybe 30 additional items that we add on top of the task list, because we feel that that's something that they need to know. And if someone comes in with their experience hours done, uh, we still run through and check off and make sure that they have these, you know, 30 mm-hmm. some odd items before we ne- really can trust them with our clients. Yeah, I think this is a whole separate topic that, you know, I'd love to have you guys back on to talk about. <laughs> How do you take the health plan to create or help us create a true internship model, a three-tier model where you have people in a mid-tier that meet a certain level of standards 
can then operate with some level of independence, you know, not a full BCBA, but help create, help truly mentor in an internship model. I'd love to sort of explore that and, and really dig a little deeper into what your team's doing, Amanda, with that internship model. And then, you know, from summer, from a research and an advocacy standpoint, like how does that impact? How do we then deliver more care, especially as states are going to be hopefully starting to offer more Medicaid services and, and all those things, the impact on this industry is we need to grow, but we can't just grow. We need to grow mm -hmm. responsibly and ethically, mm -hmm. clinically sound, you know, fill in the blank. So I think that's a great topic for a, a follow-up discussion. So before we jump off, uh, any thoughts on, on the CEU process and how maybe newer BCBAs should be looking at that to really enhance their ability to be more impactful as a clinician? You know, I think it honestly goes back to exactly the conversation that we were just having and uh, speaks to Amanda's point very eloquently. If you have a strong mentorship program in place, your mentor should be helping you with early on identifying areas that you should reach out and obtain more CEUs. And it's not just a check in the box. I need as many of these, um, but to, you truly are creating an intervention package for yourself that will fill in the holes um, for where you need more help. And, you know, just to kind of um, tag along to what's already been said, if you don't know what you don't know, then that's really where you have to have a strong mentor yeah. to help you with those. I think uh, recently I was having a conversation with a BCABA and um, we were talking about the delivery of you know potential diagnosis or, or non-diagnosis. And what I said to her is, I don't want you to have a learning experience that's going to have a negative impact on you for years to come so that even a decade from now, you're like, oh man, if I had one thing to do over, it would have been this. I don't want you know you to have that. I wish I could have a do over there. And it takes you know having that buy-in from vested seasoned clinicians to want to see the field grow in a responsible way that shows the efficacy of ABA, which is something that you know we're struggling with right now with making sure there are enough mentors because most BCBAs are less than five years into their practice. Sure. So there's, there's only a few of us old farts around that um, can, <laughs> that can provide that, that type yeah. of membership. And to that point, a lot of folks that have been around for a long time have sort of moved further away from mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day clinical and yeah. aren't in the trenches anymore. So right. it's, it's a great point. I think that you've got to also open yourself up kind of to my point earlier about looking outside of ABA. Mm -hmm. You absolutely need a mentor who is a behavior analyst and can help you with those things. But look beyond that. And there are some really great mentors that you might find yourself around that are not BCBAs. My mentor is not a BCBA right now. And she's amazing and has taught me mm -hmm. just as much as my BCBA mentors. Mm -hmm. So do that. And then on the CEUs, I say kind of make buckets for yourself. Go find some CEUs that are going to help you with what you're working on today. But find some stuff, still look for things that you're passionate about. And it might not affect your work today, but it might affect your work later on. And so just always kind of keep your aggressive curiosity and just keep looking for something that you never know is going to spark a really cool idea or your next chapter in life. Yeah, that's a great, great point. And, yeah. and I know producer Lucas is probably watching the clock. So I just have a couple little little things, Lucas. So hold on. Amanda, could you share with us your scariest driving with summer story that pops, <laughs> pops into your head? Because we all have a few. 
Yeah, I think the scariest one, and if we ever have Nicole on here, I, mm-hmm. I definitely have a real scary Nicole one. Summer, we were driving, and this was like the first time we had met Dr. Michael Cameron. Michael's in the front seat, and Summer's driving, and I believe it was Mandy and Rebecca and myself yes. in the back seat. I knew you were going to. I knew this yeah. is right. I've heard this is a good one. And so he had, he had jet black hair before this story, and now it's yeah. stark white. <laughs> Yes, yes. Now his hair is completely white. It it happened between red lights, I think. We uh, So we're driving and Summer doesn't know where she's going, even though I think she lives in Houston. She'll say she doesn't. Um, And I think she should know where she's going. I know my way around Houston better than she does. And so we go and we find this restaurant. Finally, I'm trying to navigate from the back all this time. You know, Summer's not even paying attention to me. She's talking to Michael because, you know, she's trying to impress our our future boss here. And I get that. But uh, I'm worried about my safety at the moment. So she I think you ran a couple of like hard yellow lights, changed Mm -hmm. some lanes, did some illegal u-turns or two or three and then we finally we like you know pull into the driveway of the restaurant we all go in and we're at the wrong restaurant and so we went to the wrong location and so then the drive from that restaurant to the other restaurant was twice as scary I considered taking an uber back to the hotel (laughs) I I did as well I would have happily hopped in the Uber with you. And yes. Yes. Summer, it's a rite of passage. I apologize. Someone... That's what I was going to say. If you can't survive the car with Summer, then you're not cut out for Blue Sprig anyway. So it is a good litmus test mm-hmm. for people's um, guts, I'll call it maybe, or yeah. I don't know, stupidity mm-hmm. could be the other bucket we could no, throw that into. Bravery. Bravery. bravery is, Fine. Yeah, there you go. Bravery. There you go. So Amanda, <laughs> one last thing, and Summer has already answered. She's on the record. Put on your BCBA hat for a second. Yes or no question. I need an operational definition based on your answer. Yes or no. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes. Why? Because it involves a carb like, you know, a, 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 some sort of wrap, wrapped carb around a filling. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Um, you know what I think we're going to have to do? We're going to have to seriously like write a definition and then show people pictures and then because what you just described was a burrito, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yes, I appreciate that. And guys, I, I think this was a, a very meaningful conversation. I, I appreciate it. And I, I do think I would like to revisit the idea of what mentorship should look like, what an internship mm-hmm. model could be, and, and how we can really change the way maybe a health plan looks at things from a network standpoint and really create a more impactful experience for both families and those clients. So I appreciate your time. And as always, I appreciate everyone tuning in to ABA Unfiltered. And I look forward to uh, talking to you guys again soon. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye.